lift up your word this morning. We know how powerful it is. We know how your spirit works in our hearts. God, I pray that you would just speak through Pastor Kyle, give him uh, boldness and clarity. Um, and Lord, I just pray you would do amazing things this morning. We love you. We thank you for this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, thank you. Welcome. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, I know um, sometimes in, I guess, the evangelical world, Palm Sunday isn't quite as uh, traditional service as Easter or Good Friday, um, but we are, um, just by way of reminder, um, I don't know if we mentioned, did we mention Good Friday? We are having a Good Friday service Friday night at 7. It's a shorter service, 7 to 8, so that's going to be a lot of fun, and hopefully you can all make, that up, make it out to that. Um, that, so, um, but yeah, so Palm Sunday isn't like as traditional in evangelical circles. You find them in more like historic Protestant denominations, the Roman Catholic Church, um, and the Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, celebrate, um, celebrate it and on uh, Monday, Thursday. And if you are, if you've never, if you've only always been evangelical, you probably don't even know what that is and have never even heard of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those. I was like, Monday, I thought it was on Thursday. What is this Monday, Thursday thing? But, um, <laughs> but today is Palm Sunday. Um, have you ever heard of eminent domain? Yeah. Um, we, we kind of consider this to be somewhat of a nasty thing in our day. The, it's, it's defined as the right of a government or its agent to expropriate private property for public use with payment of compensation. So for some reason that the government decides they can come, take your stuff, and pay you for it, but you don't really have anything to say about it. They can claim eminent domain and do that. It's, it's hard, it sounds harsh. It sounds invasive. Um, but many governments, in some recent and most past, wouldn't even have felt the need to pay you. Um, they, they would have felt the right to just take whatever they want to take because they're your sovereign. The word eminent means great or prestigious. It's kind of like putting a positive spin on a negative thing. <laughs> Um, eminent domain, it means great or prestigious. Domain in law means land to which there is a superior title and absolute ownership. So a king's domain would, if we still kind of lived in the times of monarchy, a king's domain would include all of his land and all of his loyal subjects and everything in his dominion, right? Not long ago, Great Britain had something throughout the world called dominions. Have you heard of this? Um, the dominions were places like India and Canada and Australia. No longer are they dominions of Great Britain, but they were at once, and it basically meant that Great Britain was the sovereign of those countries. Um, and actually, India has its own Independence Day, just like we do, um, from Great Britain, um, but it happened more in the early 1900s. In this account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we're kind of exposed to a sort of eminent domain. And if you notice this, Jesus tells his disciples, go into the village, you will find a colt, basically a donkey. And he says, bring it to me, I need it. <laughs> and he says, if anyone says, hey, what are you doing? Tell them Jesus needs it. Right? And, and as the story goes, if you were paying attention, you, you would have seen that that's exactly what happened. The disciples go into the, the village, they find a colt, they start taking the cult like any good owner would do. They, they started saying, hey, that's mine. What are you doing? That's my cult. And they say, Jesus needs it. And shocker, they say, okay, take him. <laughs> take the animal. Very interesting. 
And we're going to get back to that in a moment. Here we have the account of Jesus, they call it the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. <clears throat> you might miss the significance of this if you don't really know the historical background or exactly what's happening here in, in history, in, in the history of Israel. The account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is in every gospel, uh, which marks its importance. Did you know that in the gospels not every story is repeated? There are some stories that are told that aren't in the, other, uh, in the other Gospels. Well, the triumphal entry, like the crucifixion and like the resurrection, um, is in <clears throat> every single Gospel. This story is, is also what occasions what we call Palm Sunday. Um, it's because you saw the, 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 the bystanders laying down leafy branches and cloaks for Jesus' cult to walk on. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, because they believe those leafy branches were palm branches. <clears throat> to anyone unacquainted with the stories about Christ, you might find this like a little bit puzzling. Um, no one really lays down stuff for us to walk on anymore because of respect or what, what exactly is happening here. Even if you are acquainted with the stories about Christ, if you've been a Christian for a while, this might seem a little puzzling to you too. Um, it's, it's kind of a co um, confusing cultural practice that is somewhat lost in our culture. <clears throat> but this story actually demonstrates just exactly who Jesus at least thought he was and who these early followers claimed him to be. You see, you might reject who the claim of Christ and who he was, but you can't reject at least who he thought he was and who the people around him thought he was. So let's look at it because this text unpacks for us the identity of Jesus Christ. That three, there are three things that I can observe here about his character, about who he is and what he expects from us. That Jesus is king, Jesus is kind, and Jesus is coming. Jesus is king, Jesus is kind, <clears throat> and Jesus is coming. Have you ever met a real-life king? Nobody? Wow. Big surprise, because they don't exist anymore. There just aren't kings anymore. I've never met a real-life king. Well, there are some. There are very few. There aren't very many left of them in the world that we live in today. England actually still has a monarchy, but they don't even have a king. They have a queen. I guess that counts. Um, what I know from history, though, is that they're kind of a big deal. Um, that's all I got for you. <laughs> they, they seemed to me to usually be wealthy. Um, they seemed to expect and demand the respect of their subjects, at least in appearance, even if they didn't respect them, they still were forced to demonstrate respect in some kind of visual way. They oversaw governments and the general well-being, if they were a good king, of the people. And they basically had absolute or virtually absolute authority, uh, leaving the people with little to no power or say. Um, it was actually the, the Magna Carta that we get the, the, the legal term habeas corpus from, which limited the power of the English king so that he couldn't just arrest people without cause. That limited his power. And actually, it was in the, the, the Revolutionary War period where the king was abusing that power. They were citing habeas corpus and Magna Carta as a reason why the king was abusing his authority. But that's another story. <clears throat> there was even a certain etiquette required in their presence. If you've ever seen some of these new shows now that's kind of showing that like the, the Queen um, is a popular show now. There's some movies about um, 
um, the King of England during the time of World War II. There are certain ways to walk in in his presence and how you leave. You have to go backwards and all this etiquette to show respect. But it's in its most audacious form, in some cultures, the king was considered to have a divine right. Um, they called this the divine right of kings. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Um, this was the belief that a king only was under the authority of God himself. So that means, let's think about this. If he's only under the authority of God himself, he is not under the authority of any government. He's not even under the authority of his own law because he makes the law. He is above the law. <clears throat> even if a king was a wicked tyrant, the subjects were still to obey him because he was ordained by God to lead them. So submission no matter what, because he's God's man, right? The king um, could create the law. He could break the law because he was above the law. So your submission to an evil king would be honored by God. And this is how they pitched this to the common folk. You know, he's evil, obey him though, and, you know, God will bless you, <laughs> right? Um, so your submission to an evil king would be honored by God, and the king would be judged by God, but by God only, not by human beings. So you must submit. As medieval as this might sound, uh, versions of this mentality stem back all the way to ancient Egypt. This, just, this wasn't just an idea in the Dark Ages, you know, like um, in the, you know, the periods like the 1200s-ish AD. This goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, this mentality of the divine right of kings. The Egyptians had a temple with a holy place, just like the Israelites. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, Israel had this, this place called a temple, and inside the temple was a little tent, and inside that little tent was the presence of God. Well, the Egyptians had a temple too, and they had a, and you'll see a picture of it in a moment up on screen. The Egyptians had a temple just like the Israelites, There'll be a picture of it just in a moment up on screen. <laughs> You'll see this is the Egyptian temple. Um, the, the outer court was, um, was pretty much lined by like these um, shields and armory. And then, then the inner court, you see that black square in the center, was basically their holy of holies. And you, you see the god, the god Horus, the winged god Horus, surrounding, it's called a cartouche, surrounding something called a cartouche, which is basically an image of Ramses II. So the idea is the king, the Ra Ramses, the, fa the pharaoh, is the incarnation of Horus, the winged god. So in, even in Egyptian culture, the idea of the king was that the divine right of kings, that he represented God on earth. Isn't this interesting? <clears throat> the message was that Ramses... The Pharaoh, the king, was the in incarnation of the god Horus. Israel, if you'll notice something about Israel, if you know anything about the Isra Israelite temple, kind of imagine the same thing, but in that little tent, there is no image of a man. It's the Ark of the Covenant and the law of God, right? In the cloud, the glory cloud of God, the Bible says in the Old Testament, the presence of God enters into that little square. So there is no person in there. There is no image of a man or a king. It's just God himself. And the, the, the message would be clear that Israel's king is God himself and no man. See? So this is kind of like a mini overview of kingship in human history. Many of us perhaps more acquainted with imaginary kings. 
right? Like King Triton, for example. You know him, the father of Princess Ariel, the Little Mermaid. Strong, towering, self-assured presence, way too ripped for an old mer-king, you know, way too in shape. He would have been a little more chubby, I think. Well, and how about King Mufasa, right? The great lion king, and then he was killed by the evil scar and replaced by the good and kind Simba, King Simba. We, we have these pictures of kings as self-sacrificial, righteous, good, strong, right? We know that there are such things as evil kings, but we sort of glorify the good ones, even in our um, television shows and pictures today. Our imaginations assign a, a, just a real dignity to good kings, which is ironic because if we ever were to be given a king in our culture, we wouldn't have it as Americans. Give us liberty or give us death, death right? But, but yet, even still, we assign this kind of royal majesty to good kings, even our, in our own fantasy and imagination. Over and over again, throughout the pages of Scripture, the Lord identifies himself as king of kings. The king of kings. The one to which alone bears divine right. Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The king by which every other human ruler will bow and every other tongue confess that he alone is Lord. That's what the word of God testifies about Jesus Christ. We can believe it or not, but the Bible declares that to be true. The Bible's language about Jesus is it's so triumphant. It's so sovereign. It's so royal. And in our text, it's clear who Jesus claimed to be. The king of heaven and earth, whose reign will have no end. Amazing how audacious a claim for any of us to claim such a, th- such a thing. I am the king of all things, all created things. If I said that to you, you'd laugh at me or stone me, which, by the way, is what they did to Jesus. Genesis chapter 49 promises a coming Messiah, a king of kings. It says the scepter, that's a, an image of of Sovereign authority, governmental authority. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. See, there's a seat of government that Jesus will set up. He will tether his donkey to a vine. You see what Jesus is showing the Israelites now by coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his cult to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Isn't this incredible? Second Samuel is another promise of a great coming king in the Old Testament. It says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, now the Lord is speaking to David, King David now. David is an Old Testament king, a good king. He says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He's talking about Solomon at this point. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and that's talking about the temple for the Lord. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and and he will be my son. When he does wrong, he's talking about Solomon, I will punish him with with a rod wielded by men, 
with floggings inflicted by hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as, as I took it from Saul, that was the first king. Your house, your kingdom, kingdom will endure forever. There will be a king who will take the throne of King David and sit on it forever. That's the promise of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, another Old Testament book. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the Old Testament promised that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose reign would be without end, will enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the Jews knew it. They knew what was happening because they knew the Old Testament. So they began to throw these leafy branches in honor of the great king who had finally arrived. The heart of Jewish hope is that a Messiah, a king, a Messiah, Messiah means burning one, a king, a savior, a rescuer, would come in the line of David, the line of Judah, whose reign would be without ends. So in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the king shows up. He's here. And we know it because the people demonstrate it through their surrender, through their actions, and through their works. <clears throat> the faithful surrender their donkey to the king because he was in need of it. You see, the royal king demands eminent domain. His stuff is our stuff. Our stuff is his stuff. And when the king needs something from us, we give it to him. Because none of our possessions are ours, they're borrowed. So when the king showed up and he needed a donkey, they gave him one. Their actions demonstrated that he was the king. They lined the streets with palm leaves, acknowledging his kingly reception. And finally their words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, you know what this means? It means, Lord, save us now. Lord, oh God, in the heavens, save us. So all these throngs of people are crying out to Christ as he comes into Jerusalem on his donkey as the prophesied coming king, and they declare with one voice, save us now, King Jesus. Hosanna to God in the highest. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, <clears throat> who comes in his kingdom. Blessed means that what God intends to do, he will accomplish. And nothing can interfere with it. It means he will accomplish what he sets out to do. Blessed is he. In other words, he comes along with God's divine blessing to accomplish his mission. Blessed is he who comes in the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Save us now. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the hero, the king, the rescuer. And this is what we see. Not just a king, but also, number two, that Jesus is kind. Let's look at this, because this is very important. The Old Testament envisions the coming king, the Messiah, in two different ways. So when you read the Bible in the Old Testament, when you read about the coming king, 
he's either going to be depicted as a conqueror who is crushing sin, who is declaring righteousness, who is defeating um, his enemies, or he's going to be depicted as a bruised reed, as a sacrifice. Isaiah 53, for example, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us, turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here, the king is sacrificed as a lamb. He doesn't seem so much to be a conquering hero here, but rather a sacrifice. So the Jewish multitudes, when they received Jesus that day on Palm Sunday, they either forgot or did not fully understand that the Messiah would have to die before he would conquer. You see, they were expecting Christ to come in and overrun the Roman government to set up his righteous eternal kingdom. But before he did that, he had to die. So while Jesus did ride into Jerusalem as a king, the king was entering Jerusalem as a sacrificial lamb to save us from our sin. Before he would defeat the wicked schemes of evil rulers, he would first conquer sin and death. Now this is very significant, friends. And this is so important. We'll get to, the, to, get to why in a moment. This was not the king anyone had expected. Here was the king as a lamb to be slaughtered. Jesus, not simply a king, but a kind king a compassionate king who loves his creation. The burden he carried on the cross secured the salvation of his people and makes possible the deliverance of anyone lost in sin, anyone in this room to this day. You see, your greatest problem is not your problem. Your greatest problem is your sin, your separation from God. But God bridges the gap of his anger to you with the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. You see, because the king is not just a conquering king, he is a saving king, he is a kind king. The throngs of people cry out, save us now, king of heaven. They desire liberation from Roman rule and earthly injustice, as do we. And this type of Messiah was even promised to them. So it's not crazy that they would expect it. But had Christ come first to conquer there would be no kingdom to rule. Did you hear me? If Christ came first to conquer, we would be under his awful judgments and forever separated from him. The injustice that we cry out for him to resolve, his wrath would also fall on us because we are an injustice. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It would demand that he separate all of us and everything from him. So if he was to come first as a conqueror and not a savior, we would be utterly destroyed to the uttermost. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. It's important because we often seek God with the same sentiment. Save us now. Don't, don't we often come to church like that? Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm hurting. Something bad is happening in my life. And we want God 
to get us off the hook, to solve the problem. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes when he doesn't, now, now do we stop, we stop asking him for what we're asking him for. Now we see him as our enemy. He didn't solve my problem. So save us now, we demand. Rescue me from the sorrow, the suffering, the injustice. And friends, I don't mean to be insensitive to your pain because we go through very difficult things and our God is a compassionate God and he loves you and he grieves with you in your grief. The Bible says that he's near to the brokenhearted. But oftentimes we invite him to come and end the burden of sin. But if he should oblige us, he would have to end the one asking. You see? He's got to save you first. Before he can ease your pain and the sufferings of life, he needs to save you. Before you come to God for help, friend, you need to come to him as a sinner needing forgiveness. And then he'll deal with that injustice and that hardship. Because Jesus is kind, he didn't come first as a conqueror, but a savior, a sacrifice. You could argue that even his first coming he conquered, because yes, he conquered sin and death. But he did this as the Lamb of God who died for us. Now let's add some more good news to this glorious message. You say, oh, good news, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Yeah, yeah, because you can be saved. He offered a sacrifice for you because he loves you. That's great news. It's also great news because you know why your soul aches. It primarily has to do with a disconnect in your relationship with God and not so much with people. See, friend, come to God as your Savior and Lord and let him forgive you and save you. But there's more good news because not only has Jesus saved you by faith in his Son, but he's coming back. He's coming back. After Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, angels, you see this in the book of Acts in the New Testament, angels have something to say to the apostles. And you know what it is? Men of Galilee, see, Jesus just ascends into heaven. This is the story of after Jesus resurrects from the dead. He reveals himself to his apostles and followers, and he ascends into heaven to the right hand of God the Father to intercede for us, by the way, sinners. Okay, So right now, Jesus is interceding for sinners in heaven. That's what he's doing. But that's besides the point. Jesus ascends into heaven, and like probably us, everyone around is just like, like this, right? And then all the, they're just standing there with their mouths open. And then all of a sudden, the angels come. They shut their mouths. You look like a fish. Close your mouth. Um, and they say this, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I think I would have been like, well, did you just see what happened? That's why. You can be a little fresh to angels, but not to Jesus. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus, friends, is coming. He is coming. And you say, well, it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. Because we live in the world. It's messy. It's hard. It's it lacks justice. It's some, oftentimes we're just kind of plagued by anxiety and insecurity and sorrow. 
just doesn't feel as if that he's coming back. But you know, to Jesus, to God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. He is coming quickly. He is coming soon. And what's he going to do when he comes back? Well, he's going to do what they expected him to do at his first coming. He's coming to judge, to restore, and to reward. To judge, to restore, and to reward. Revelation chapter 19, verse 21. And let me just say this right off the bat, because I know, I know the world that we live in today. And we often say, I don't like the idea of God as a judging God. And let's just kind of pause to think about that for a minute. Is that really true? Do you really want a God that doesn't judge? Do you really want a God who lets evil people get away with evil? Without consequence. None of us want that. None of us live like that ourselves. Of course, if there was not a God who will right all wrongs, who will punish sin and remove it, then what kind of world is that? You see, we need a God who judges. Or how could we explain away the the wickedness and the evil that we see so often? Revelation chapter 19 through chapter 21. I'm just not going to read the whole thing. Um, But has an amazing picture of some, some of what Christ will be doing when he returns. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven. This is the Apostle John. He's getting a vision of the future. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. It's not a donkey this time. It's a horse, a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who said that? So this is Jesus Christ. With justice, he judges and wages war. You know, you don't, chances are you don't like the idea of a God who judges because you're from the West. If you were from the East, you wouldn't like the idea of a loving God who doesn't judge ever. Because we're a different culture. Just kind of keep that in mind. But his eye, listen to this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, whose justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the resurrected incarnate Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth to judge, to wage war and to end all evil and sin. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Why is this? Because his own blood paid for the sins of many. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now this is amazing. I want you to think about this now because these are not angels. Because they're dressed in white, fine and clean. They're declared righteous, in other words. This is imagery that these armies behind Christ as he returns are made righteous. Now, who's made righteous in the Bible? The church. Believers and those who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior are declared righteous, clothed not because of our own works, but because of the works of Christ. We're given his goodness, his righteousness, and here we are, standing on nothing, 
as Jesus returns there to applaud him as he renews heaven and earth. Imagine that one day you will stand on nothing, clothed in white, as you see the King of Kings come back to this earth. That's the privilege you get as a believer in Jesus. Remarkable. Amazing. He will rule with them, it says. He will, excuse me, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's a much different picture of Jesus on the donkey and Jesus on the white horse, but one in the same they are. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, friend, when Jesus comes back, he is coming to end sin and separate it from his presence forever. And I hope that your names are written in that book. Because if it's not, you will participate in the second death forever separated from his goodness and kindness. And it is so unnecessary because at this point in time, you simply can cry out to the good king, the good Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me and he will oblige. He will do it because he's kind and he loves you. He desires no one to perish but that they would repent and have life. Come to him, friend, because he is coming to judge. But he's also coming to restore. You know what else it says in Revelation at the end? It says, Then I saw, after all of this finality, all of this ending of wickedness, this is what happens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away their tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This amazing heaven, this is heaven. By the way, earth is in heaven. It says it right there. We're not standing on nothing in some stratosphere in outer space. Heaven is on earth, a new earth that he creates. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. There is no more divorce. There is no more cancer. There is no more assassinations. There is no more school shootings. Friends, because the king has come. And when the king comes... He restores. He restores. The lion lies with the lamb. The child puts his hand in the asp den and is not bit or hurt. You see, friends, Christ is coming not only to judge but to restore. Restore us to right relationship with him, what we were always supposed to have with him. Isn't that incredible? But finally, he's coming to reward. He is coming to reward. Psalm chapter 16 says this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. 
You alone are my portion and my cup, my inheritance, my riches, my wealth. You see? That's what the psalmist is saying. He says, therefore, because I recognize that all of my identity and personhood and self-image is wrapped up in who you are, not who I am or who other people are, or say that I am, because of this, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You see, friends, bad stuff might happen to us, but the rescuer's coming to reward us. You will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand forevermore. You see, that's the reward. See, when Jesus comes to judge and to restore, he is coming to bring us the great reward, which is his pre- presence and pleasure. Isn't that fantastic? First Peter chapter 1, listen to this. Praise be to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because in his mercy, he's given us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. An inheritance that can never spoil or fade. You know, some of us have some parents that might be dead soon, right? They're they're getting old. And because of that, we got to put them in homes and there go your inheritance, the inheritance you thought you were going to get. Now it's gone. But friends, you know what Scripture promises you? It promises you a good inheritance secured by the powerful sovereign hand of God that cannot be lost. It cannot be snatched from His hand. This inheritance is kept in, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You, in Christ, you are protected, you are safe, you are kept by the power of God. You see, bad stuff might be happening to you. You might have lost your money, maybe even your spouse, maybe even a child, but friends, he is coming with an inheritance Reserved in heaven for you. In all this, greatly rejoice, Scripture says. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come, to come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is greater than gold, which perishes even by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. You see that Jesus, when he is revealed on that white horse, the faith which you had in him will be praised. Isn't this amazing? It will result in the praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. So you might feel like a loser this morning, but I got news for you, you're not. In Christ, you're not. You might think, well, I'm not, a less, less, I'm, I'm not as attractive I'm less competent. I'm getting kind of fat, you know. I'm not as smart as other people around me. I just kind of feel like a failure. And this is real, right? We go through this stuff. Come on. Really, come on. I got I to gotta put myself right in the mix of this because I can, I can have weeks where my head's hanging low and I'm forgetting all of this stuff. Because in Christ, God so, saw so much dignity in me, worth in me, that he would send his son to die for me. How do you know how much something is worth? How do you know? I mean, why is gold worth anything? Well, because we ascribe value to it, right? I know there are other reasons, but at the end of the day, if we didn't think it was valuable, we wouldn't pay anything for it. 
Right? So something is worth based on the person who ascribes worth to it. So if Jesus sent his son to die for you because he loves you, why do you think you're a bum? Why do you think you're a loser? Why do you think you failed? You haven't. You get everything Jesus gets. In Christ, you get everything Jesus gets. Just think about that. What does Jesus have? Jesus has perfect intimacy with God the Father in heaven. Jesus has the title deed to planet earth. He is going to rule over all creation as king. You have everything Jesus has. Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us and adopted us as sons through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will, which he has freely given us. Freely, for free. How much is this? How much does this cost? Nothing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of his grace. You are, you're forgiven by grace, not by works. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. You see, you're included in Christ. You're in Christ. Everything Jesus has, you have. Everything he gets, you get. That's not fair, right? I know what I've done. You know what you've done. You say, I'm not that bad a person, but come on, let's get real. We know what we've done. That's not fair. But I get it all. Because the judgment was paid by Christ instead of me. He replaced me. He died the death I should have died. And I get the reward. I get everything he gets. If you are in Christ, you've lost You're a failure. You're a bum. You've got a bum deal. Dude, you hit the lottery, right? You hit the lottery, and you weren't even playing. How did that happen? (laughs) Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I am the root, the offspring of David. You see, Jesus the King has come. He rides on a colt to bear your sins and mine, and he is coming again. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and drink without cost. Oh, praise God, come Lord Jesus, you're not junk, friend. You're not garbage. You are destined for great things in Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. It's time. Today's the time. So what does this teach us? First of all, it's not your donkey. Okay? The donkey that you lost was never yours to begin with. Eminent domain, right? You will start thinking that you got a bum deal out of life if you love earthly life more than your heavenly promise. That's what's going to happen. It happens to me often. 
Our joy and our peace will be dramatically affected when something's taken from us or said about us. But none of it's ours anyways. It's not our donkey. It's his. We have the privilege to use our borrowed items for his glory. Amen? Okay, it's not your donkey. Here's something else we can learn. Something better than a donkey is coming. You lost your donkey? All right. It's hard, and sometimes life is hard, and we grieve. But something better than a donkey is coming. We can complain about not having the donkey that we loved. But isn't his reward better? Piper once said this. I'm not sure the reward is some big pile of money. You know, when we get to heaven, Jesus will be standing there like Uncle Scrooge with his big golden pile for us, or a hundred virgins, right? He said, I'm sure it's more of him, more of his love, more of his presence and pleasure, more of Jesus. Friends, a world without sin and death and right relationship to the king, the creator, our good God. That's better than a donkey, isn't it? Okay. Oh, and by the way, number three, you don't need the donkey. Right? It's not your donkey. Something better than a donkey is coming, and you don't need it anyway. Right? The donkey doesn't prove your worth. It doesn't declare you righteous. It doesn't make you a success. It doesn't keep you safe. You know, I hope that you know I'm kind of playing with words here. <laughs> you know, you fill in the blank. A bride, a wife, a child, a job, money. It doesn't declare you excess or keep you safe. So why did I include the Peter story? You might be wondering this by now. Maybe you already forgot that we read that part in the beginning. Why did I include that? Um, Jesus told Peter that things were going to happen to him that he wouldn't want to happen. Right? Someone's going to carry you to a place you won't want to go. And, Jesus, and, and Peter says, well, are you going to take his donkey? Right? He's taking my, you're taking my donkey. Are you going to take his? <laughs> That's the first thing he says to Christ. John, the apostle John he was speaking of. And Jesus replies, what is it to you if I give uh, John a million donkeys? What is it to you? You follow me. Because your life is not about possessions or peace or prosperity. Your life is about being part of the entourage of Christ when he returns on that white horse to restore and to judge and to reward. You see, that's your inheritance. That's your lot. It's not a bunch of smelly donkeys. It's not your life, Peter. I'm going to give you something better than the life that you will now lose. And a secure life is not what you need anyway. Peter, it's not your donkey. I got something better than a donkey for you. And a donkey won't make you happy anyway, even if you get a bunch of them. Follow me. Follow the king. Palms up on Palm Sunday. Follow Christ and return with the king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you glory and honor, God, for the eminent domain of Christ's kingdom. The glorious privilege of being part of it by grace through faith. And friend, if you have not repented of your sin and believed in Jesus Christ and turned to him and trusted in him,
that your problem is not your problem. Your problem is separation from Jesus because of sin. You can repent of it and turn to him right now and receive his gracious favor and receive the promise of returning with your great king one day. If that's you, cry out to God right now. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. I love you. Your son died for me in my place so that I would never have to taste death. Friends, if that's you, receive the gift of God by grace through faith. You have an inheritance reserved by his power and not yours. Amen. If that's you, could you raise your hand nice and high? If you're accepting Christ, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Is anyone here coming to faith and repentance in Christ? Oh, friend, if you don't know Christ, raising a hand does nothing anyway. Would you seek him? Would you continue to consider his message and come to believe him? God, we thank you for this wonderful service, time that we get to reflect on how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.